0: We're going to continue to see how God is unfolding his plan to rescue and redeem Israel from out of bondage in Egypt. Of course, the main the main story, the main hero, the main protagonist of this book is God himself as he reveals his name, as he shows us who he is. He's a redeeming God, a saving God, a God who moves to rescue his people, Israel. So, just to think in terms of timeline, in chapter 2, Moses' birth happens about 80 years before the burning bush where God commissions him and sends him back to Egypt to rescue the people of Israel, or to be his agent who rescues the people of Israel. So, in chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 10, that's the first few years of Moses' life. Verse 11 starts and fast forwards 40 years into the development of Moses as he is um, being prepared to be God's agent of rescue. Part is to ask you, are you willing to suffer for God to use you? Are you willing to be an agent that is at God's disposal regardless of the cost? I think Moses in this text pays the cost of being God's servant. It God's appointment of him as his agent of rescue. You'll see in the first series of verses, he tries to rescue Israel, probably a little bit by taking things into his own hands. You'll see how Israel responds, and then you'll see once again how in exile, Moses tries to be a rescuer. So let's begin reading. I'll read verses 11 down through verse 22. A judge over us. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away but Moses stood up and saved them by the way that, that word for saved right there is the same word you'd use for the salvation that Christ has given to us save them and watered their flock verse 18 when they came home to their father Ruel he said how is it that you have come home so soon today they said an egyptian delivered us out of the hand of shepherds and even drew water out for us and watered the flock he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with a man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth his son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, an exile, a pilgrim, a wanderer without a homeland. When you look at this text, it lays out for us how God is preparing Moses Uh, In some ways, I I think even as a child reading this story, there's so much that is is present that you do see, and so much that could be missed. That subtle, that Moses is doing to um, equip himself and to become the man that God wants him to be. Maybe if we if we outlined it in the three episodes, it would be helpful in terms of just looking at the text well. In the first episode, he rescues a Hebrew from an Egyptian. Look down in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked. On their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, which means he killed him, struck him to death, and then hit him in the sand. I asked you at the beginning, what would you do, or would you be willing to suffer if God called you to a task that required suffering? I think one of the problems in our American church is there so little suffering, we don't know how to deal with it when it comes. Uh, very little in our Christian faith requires courage or sacrifice. And I'm not particularly asking that, you know, we go and cause personal affliction by being stupid. You know, don't go into Walmart and just start yelling at the top of your lungs that you're all going to burn in hell if you don't trust Jesus. I'm not recommending any crazy, um, unhelpful ways of ministering. But is it possible that in a text like this, not only do you see see God's hand moving and preparing his agent, but you recognize that that's not always pleasant for the agent. It's always pleasant for the instrument in God's hands. And that God actually asks of us as he moves his world to graciously respond by putting ourselves at his disposal by joining him and his cause gladly. Despite the cost, I think you'll see that with Moses, that's the case. And I think as we consider this text, then, and you look in verse 11, you see that Moses put himself in a place where God could use him. So God's servant chooses to affiliate himself with God's people. Uh, just this morning in our membership class, I just mentioned membership. Ironically, in our membership class, in, in in defending it a little bit, but it's so frequent in our Christian church in America that the question will be asked: Well, why should I join the church? Is membership biblical? You guys are all looking at me like you're waiting for an answer. Um, I I think it is biblical. That's why we do it at our church. As one of the pastors here, if I didn't think it was biblical, I'd probably be agitating to get rid of membership. But Moses had that same dilemma. I want you to consider who Moses is at this point. He's living as a prince of Egypt. He's a 40-year-old man in this text. That's what Acts chapter 7 makes clear to us, that he had grown up. So we're not talking about, in verse 11, when Moses had grown as a 14-year-old boy and he's finally six foot. We're talking about a man who's an adult. But when you look at the text, again, he says he had grown up and he went out to, notice it says very carefully, his people. It's actually in the Hebrew, his brothers. And then again, he looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers. The Holy Spirit is telling us something very clearly about Moses' affiliation at this point. Moses has transferred loyalties. And now he's viewing the Hebrews not only as kind of like his heritage, but actually his brothers in whom he finds solidarity or unity. How do you know this? Well, look in verse 12. He looked this way, and that, seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. Not only does he um, see them as his people, Moses also recognizes that as his people, he should defend him from injustice. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that Moses should have killed him. Most commentators thoroughly castigate and condemn Moses for this act. I think they're probably a little bit hasty in their assumptions, but I don't know that we should look on favor with how Moses killed this man. He looked this way, and that probably indicates he knows at least it's not acceptable to the governance. So again, I think you see the, the idea of affiliation. He knows he's putting himself at great risk in order to do what? To rescue one of his brothers. So again, read that text carefully. Here's the prince of Egypt, or a prince probably. You know, he's living in the palace. He's still Pharaoh's son by adoption. I mean, Pharaoh's daughter's son by adoption. And he goes out to his brothers. He sees one of his brothers under affliction. And then he acts contrary to self-interest to rescue one of his brothers. I want you to see how Hebrews describes this moment. And you'll see that the author of Hebrews is identifying this same crisis of decision. Hebrews 11, verse 24 After speaking of his birth, verse 24 then says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, you see how the author of Hebrews is pulling that same phrase we saw in uh, Exodus 2.11? When Moses grew up, here's what happened. By faith, when he grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. That's the author of Hebrews commentary in these verses. That is Moses is recognizing that his people are under bondage and affliction. As they're being oppressed. He goes out to join his brothers. And he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew who's innocent. And he steps in. And rejects his right. And you know he's rejected his right when he commits murder. What is Pharaoh going to do with any murder of an Egyptian? There is no way he's going to allow a princeling in his house to have a personal insurrection for the Hebrews, this nation he's already afraid of, and against the Egyptians. Moses knows this. He knows the context he's living in where the Pharaoh has set all of Egypt to kill the boys and to cast them in the Nile River. Moses joins and affiliates himself with Israel. He had great risk to himself. He kills this man and probably out of expediency, buries him in the sand. Not exactly a noble burial for an Egyptian, but probably very quickly done by a hardworking Moses. So Moses does this, he kills this this Egyptian. Acts says that he, well, let's turn to Acts. It's insightful to this text. Acts 7. And this will lead us to our second consideration. Because you might want to ask this question, what was Moses actually thinking about himself? Come to Acts 7. I want you to look down into verse 24. And you want to keep your finger here. We'll be back here again on the next point. Seeing one of them wronged, Acts 7 is p- picking up that narrative where he's seeing that Egyptian. He defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Verse 25 then gives insight into Moses' thoughts. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. So isn't that interesting? Here Moses is looking. He's affiliating himself with Israel. He's considering them his brothers. And he's recognizing God's role for him. Who's told him? We haven't had the burning bush yet. This is something God is moving in his heart, and it's silent in Scripture as to how this is happening. But understanding God's movement through history on how God has providentially put him in this place, in this palace, and he's rejecting the pleasures that are offered to him and joins himself to God's people, he also joins himself to their afflictions, to their burden. And now he's saying, but God might give salvation through me, so I'm going to step up. Having done all that, I would just suggest to you, it seems as though by Israel's response that Moses is perhaps a little bit too early. That Egypt isn't, or excuse me, Israel is not ready to receive him. God has not yet moved in Israel to open their arms to him. And so in the providence of God, Moses is poorly received. Let's just start with this thought. Moses is identified and honored in both New Testament texts, Acts and Hebrews, for choosing to bind himself to God's people. Just let that sit for a little bit. Affiliation with God's people is so critical to the New Testament that it's preaching it from Moses' choice to choose to be with and associate and suffer under, under the hand of the Egyptians because he, he was to affiliate with God's people. Having said that, how did Israel respond? So that's like episode one, he saves a Hebrew from an Egyptian. Episode two, he's going to save a Hebrew from a Hebrew. Look at verse 13. He went out the next day. I'm going to take that literally. Like We're talking 24 hours later. He's like, okay, I'm going to go and see if there's any more rescuing needed. Like, I'm going to put on his little police hat, little plastic badge. He's going to do this sheriffing. He's going to make sure nothing bad happens. He's already already seen the plight and the burden and and the bondage that Israel's under. And he's rescuing people. Verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13. And he went out the next day. Behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong. Now, I I just want to suggest to you, since the Holy Spirit is inspiring this, the man is actually in the wrong. I've heard a couple commentators kind of like squish this one out as though he's just, you know, kind of putting his nose in business where it doesn't belong. Again, he's seeing his job as one of rescuer, a lowercase s savior. Why do you strike your companion? The man who is in the wrong answers Who made you prince and judge over us? There's a lot of irony there, isn't there? Who has done this thing? Well, at this point, I, you know, Moses hasn't received his commission from the Lord. He hasn't been to the burning bush. But you come to chapter 18, guess where Moses is? He's sitting in front of Israel. Guess where Israel's at? They're waiting to get him to answer them as judge. And Moses' father-in-law, we'll meet in just a moment, is saying, Hey, Moses, this is too much for you to do. They're waiting around just to have a chance to talk to you. You need to divide up the burden. Because Moses is sitting as prince and judge over all of Israel. And God is telling us that he had already established and is already strengthening Moses for the task. You're seeing the growing burden of a man called to ministry who has yet to be appointed by God to the ministry. So, what does he do in verse 14? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. Acts 7.35, I hope you kept your finger in Acts. Stephen narrates. That's a sad commentary on Israel. Israel throughout its history struggles with this. In fact, Jesus and John both make the point. You know what Israel did with the prophets, right? And Jesus makes the point in the Sermon on the Mount. Rejoice and be exceeding glad when you are persecuted for my namesake, for great is your reward, because this is what they did to the prophets who came before you. How did Israel treat the prophets? They killed them. They rejected them. And here is their first prophet. How did Israel treat this first prophet they've ever had? Acts 7.35. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So, so Stephen puts two things together. The first one, though, is the rejection. The second one is the burning bush. Israel rejects him. God appoints him. And Stephen is saying, he's preaching Christ Right? He's saying, you've rejected Christ. And they're like, what? We wouldn't reject a prophet from God? <laughs> Stephen's like, oh really? Let's go through this here. And he starts preaching to them about Moses. He says, Moses came as God's deliverer. And he rescued you from the Egyptian. And he buried him. And what did you do? You. Except it doesn't say singular. It's they rejected him. Right? They rejected him. So you look at verse 14 when he says, who made you prince and judge over us? Stephen says the nation was speaking through this man. He is rejected by the people he came to rescue. Now again, if I ask the question, are you willing to suffer if God calls you to it? I think all of us want to be like, yes. Moses at this point realizes that both mission and life are in jeopardy and flees before Pharaoh can kill him. Now just to unravel that a little bit, there's no doubt that if they're missing a, a taskmaster, that they're going to send out some type of tribunal investigator type of person. Well, it's common knowledge apparently. And if this guy is willing to mouth off to Moses like this now, when the investigator comes and puts the, the pressure on him, there's no doubt that he's going to cave and throw Moses under the proverbial bus. Chariot, if we want to be a little more timely. Right? Like, there's no way Moses is going to survive an investigation. And certainly he didn't. Pharaoh found out it was Moses. Moses is in the land of Midian. So we have Moses acting as a rescuer on day one. Literally the next day, he's once again rescuing. This is God stirring up and preparing a man for ministry. This is God providentially moving on and putting burden on Moses so that when he acts, even Stephen is saying, it is clear that he recognized that God had appointed him for the salvation of Israel. Now, again, I don't want to be too critical of Moses because I don't think the text in Exodus leads us to be critical of him. But Stephen says he supposed that the people would know. It's interesting when God calls Moses to the burning bush, he says, the people won't accept me. Like Moses had probably a misplaced confidence that the people would accept him. And then he has a misplaced doubt that they won't accept him after the after the Lord sends him and commissions him. And I would just suggest to you all that if God has called you to a task, he doesn't necessarily call you to success those are not the same thing. I mean, have, have, Isaiah's call to me is one of the most powerful calls in all of Scripture where he sees God and he, he falls on his face and he says, I'm a man who deserves to die because I have seen the high and lifted up holy God. And then, then as God commissions him, he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, the more clear you make the message, the more muddy their understanding will become. And the louder you speak, the deafer they will be. And the more you preach to soften the hearts, the more hard they will become. Now go, Isaiah, and minister. Who wants to minister to that church? It's like the less you preach, the better they are. The more you preach, the worse they become. God calls, He doesn't always call us to success. And here he's summoning Moses, burdening Moses, and moving through providence to lead Moses to his place of ministry. Come down with me to verse 16. We'll see the third and final moment of salvation for Moses. <clears throat> Moses fled from Pharaoh, in verse 15, to the land of Midian. And then he sat down by a well. The well seem to be very central to the Old Testament patriarchs, don't they? They live in this arid desert land. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and did what? That's the same word for salvation that you would find for God's work of salvation. In fact, it's used of Exodus 14, thus the Lord saved Israel. The term for salvation, it would be the, that part of Jesus' name, That that Yeshua, where it's Yahweh saves, that Shua sound there, for God's salvation. And if you were to consider this thought for a moment, we recognize that Moses meets his bride at a well. Who else met his bride at a well? You guys remember the story of Jacob and Rachel? Where Jacob, after leaving his family, is heading towards Uncle Laban's house. And he's there and he meets some shepherds and he's sitting there at the well, and along comes Rachel, like love at first sight moment. His future bride to be, his beloved Rachel. And he takes care of her, meets her, he hugs her, and she introduces him to her dad, Uncle Laban. Or maybe you remember the story of Isaac and his wife being found where? At a well. Apparently, well's for the place. If you're single, go to the well. You find a wife. I don't know what it is about these things. But even even to move forward a little bit more, can you think of another man who has an important meeting at a well? In John chapter 4, at Jacob's well, Jesus has a meeting with a woman, an outcast woman who Maybe she's coming to the well to meet a man because she's struggling with her relationships with men. And there Jesus ministers a sweet gospel of salvation. Does anyone thirsty? You'll never be thirsty again if you drink the water, the living water that I can give. And she trusts and is saved, goes and gathers her whole town to come back to the well. This is no accident. God is establishing Moses' credentials So that the very people who rejected him would see that he stands along with the patriarchs, along with Isaac, along with Jacob, having this moment at a well in which he saves people. And it ends up being his bride and her six sisters. There's only that happening there. You'll notice that Moses becomes a shepherd. I don't think there's like massive theological significance, but I don't think it's insignificant either in this. Consider this, as you read through the text, Moses joins them, he joins his father-in-law, right, he, he verse 22, Moses is content. It's not like, well, fine, if you, if you you know, pose, I'll stay. It's more like this is a decision to join them. Do you remember what the Egyptians thought of shepherds? If you recall in, in Genesis, I think it's around chapter 39, as Jacob's coming down to move to Egypt, Joseph says to him, hey, tell Pharaoh you're a shepherd because they despise shepherds. When they meet with Pharaoh, they tell Pharaoh, and this is Exodus, uh, I'm sorry, it's Genesis 46 and and then Genesis 47. And he says, it says to Pharaoh, I and my fathers were shepherds. You think about that, that's true, isn't it? Going back to Abel, what did Abel do? a shepherd. What did Abraham do? The shepherd. Jacob, shepherd. They're shepherds. What was Joseph up till now? Hey, the prince. This guy doesn't fit. Like something, something doesn't match her. Shepherd, 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 prince. And now. He's going to be a shepherd. And for 40 years, he's going to learn to lead sheep. Isaiah uh, 63 verse 11 says that he shepherded God's people through the waters. If you think about shepherds and leaders of Israel, you can't help but think of David. The sweet psalmist of Israel, who even after he killed Goliath, went back and tended his father's sheep. It's no surprise then that when Jesus teaches us in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I laid lay out my life for the sheep. Moses is being qualified by God's providential hand to raise up a leader. Not only just a leader, but a leader that Israel would look at and see this pedigree, whether it's through the incidentals These providential happenings where he meets at a well and saves people. Or whether just joining the patriarchs as a shepherd, who knows how to care and lead. God is qualifying and raising up this man. We don't know a lot about Jethro, his father-in-law. Here he's named Ruel. Maybe it's a family name, perhaps. Perhaps a patriarch of the family, but I I would think family name. Kind of like a tribal last name. And he gives his daughter to Moses. And I want you to look at Moses' last words here recorded in this text. She gave birth to a son. He called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. I always get a kick out of like Old Testament names. Because they actually mean stuff. But they don't mean like wonderful things. (laughs) Like... We don't even know what our names are, and if you go to some, like, cute store, they'll tell you your name means wonderful things. It probably doesn't. But we'll say it does. Gershom. I'm in exile. Well, where is he in exile from? You think where Moses is at this point? Moses has been rejected by Egypt. Egypt wants him dead. The Bible says that he chose the affliction with God's people rather than to enjoy the pleasures. It says of sin. I don't know that necessarily we should think of that as some type of like lewd or crass sin. But just the choosing of affiliation with Egypt rather than God's people would have been sin. And rather than all the accoutrements, the wealth, and, and the power that that offered, it was better for him to join God's people, whether it cost him his life or not, than to continue being in Egypt. He's rejected by the Egyptians, and he's in exile from his people. Like, to me, it's a little bit of a sad name. It's kind of like, I don't belong. What's your name? I don't belong. Oh, okay. Wow, well, your parents must love you. And Moses is is saying something. God's call on him has cost him his land, his privilege, and even at this moment, his people. Is God in this? Absolutely. Is God moving to prepare and equip Moses? Absolutely. And so I ask you again, as you consider a text like this, in which God is bringing these threads together, where God is teaching us as he raises and equips Moses and has him join God's people. And Hebrews says he would rather suffer affliction with God's people. God is pulling the world out of Moses. right? He's pulling the world out of him and pulling Moses out of the world. And then as he tries to rescue a Hebrew from a Hebrew, and the Jews look at him and say, who are you? We're going to just like flip that for a moment. It's just a, a, a stark reminder that we don't like people over us. Like, here's a man who's an oppressed slave, and he's beating up a fellow slave. And Moses comes in and stops him from abusing someone else. And he's angry at Moses for stopping him from being an abuser. I don't know if you've ever identified yourself with that guy, but his response to Moses is not only faithless, he counterattacks Moses and he expresses to us our own reflection. We love independence. We hate authority. It doesn't even matter if it's God's authority. We do not want to be told what to do. And our nation leans into that. Don't tread on me. You don't tell me what to do. You're not my boss. Moses is rejected as leader. And even in doing this, you can see the scars are still felt 40 years later at the burning bush. It hurt. It cost him. And we move forward into Midian. And there's this, I mean, consider where Midian is. It's in the Arabian desert. And the first thing Moses does in a desert is to do what? You go to a well, you're thirsty. And there he saves. This is also where in the burning bush episode, God brings all of Israel back to that mountain, Sinai. So he's shepherding right where God is going to bring his people. He's going to spend 40 years probably as somewhat of a nomad scouring the land, and then he's going to go get Israel and spend another 40 years here in the desert. God is equipping him to know how to live in the land, to know how to move in the land, and how to lead flocks. Sheep for the first 40, the sheep of Israel for the next 40. God is doing all of this to equip and prepare Moses. I want to take you as we conclude here to Hebrews. And I want you to consider what Hebrews then and does with this and how it preaches this reminder to join God's people and suffer with them. Look with me in Hebrews 10. People in Hebrews are struggling because they're actually expected to suffer and still hold to the gospel, still be faithful to Christ. So you come into Hebrews 10. I want you to look down into verse 32. Recall former days, Hebrews 10, 32 starts, when you were enlightened and endured hard struggle with sufferings. So he's just building a timeline here. Hey, guys, I want you to look back and remember, you got saved, then what came? Hard struggles and sufferings. This is so different than often we hear the gospel taught. The order matters, you're saved, and now you live this blessed life, and no problems come, and it's going to be wealth and joy, your kids are going to obey you, you're going to have a great job. That's not at all what he says. You are enlightened, you're saved, and then there's hard struggles and sufferings. Verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For your compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that yourselves had a better possession. An abiding one. You can almost see how he'll begin thinking about Moses as he's writing that. Here's what happens. He chooses To put his lot in with God, it says, by faith, chapter 11. This is probably, in some ways, that personal crisis moment of, am I going to follow God? To join with God and get all of the good and the affliction in this life with a promise and the hope of eternal life. And the the author of Hebrews is preaching, don't let go, even when it's hard. Then you come to chapter 11, and just to reread and make it clear to you, Look with me in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he's grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith, he chose this. By faith that it was better to be God's people than to live in palaces with pleasure. Right? It's by faith that that perception comes. By faith, I know it's better to be God's people than be a prince. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ. Now, this is fascinating. Where is Christ in all of this? Right? <laughs> like He's going to Exodus 2. And as Moses is considering to affiliate and to join with and to become part of Israel, he's saying he chose to suffer with whom? With Christ. I think there's probably some sense in which Israel as God's people represents not merely God and God's people, but God's chosen servant, the Messiah. That is, throughout all of history, it seems as though God's people in New and Old Testament are unified with Christ. So we could say, I mean, Christ says something like this, but we are completing the sufferings of Christ. That's how the New Testament describes it. Probably the clearest example of this, to make it really plain, is in in Acts where the apostle Paul is, well, at this point he's not the apostle, he is persecuting the church and Christ says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, he didn't say the church, what does he say? Me. And so as this choice to affiliate with God's people is, is pressed on Moses and by faith he joins God's people and he suffers with them. And he becomes one with the people of God. He's also one with the Messiah that arises from the people of God and stands with them. But I want you to come forward a little bit further into Hebrews. Look with me in chapter 13. See, this is one of those most precious texts. Verse 12 of Hebrews 13. Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Now there's there's a point of removing the sacrifices out of the camp to cast them aside. It's a sign of being excluded from the accepted people. It's a sign of the rejection of our Messiah. It's a sign of his shame. Verse 12. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him, where? Outside the camp. And bear the reproach he endured. Now, when I consider what Moses did, and I see how the New Testament preaches to us, Moses' life is not only... Just an expression of God's magnificent mastery over every moment of Moses' life. It is also a call to join with God's people and to embrace God's people as Moses did. Or as we see the Savior doing, and Moses by extension, to choose Christ and affliction. To choose Christ and shame. So Christ is where? In this text, he's outside the camp. He's outside the gate. He is not the honored one. Where did Christ die? Not only outside the precincts of of the city of Jerusalem, but in shame, in nakedness, rejected by God, rejected by Israel. Suffering. And the author of Hebrews says, so, so to get Christ, what do we have to do? We have to go to him. We have to join him in suffering and affliction and, and whatever the cost may be. Christ doesn't come and save us in our comfort to leave, leave us comfortable. He says, come to me. And we come. Well, how much will it cost? I don't know. But are you willing to give it all? Like, are you willing to give your life for Christ? Romans, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That is Jesus. He trusted the Father. Did he die because the Father called him to die? Do you think Jesus gets out of the grave and the resurrection goes, man, I'm not trusting you ever again? If God calls you to suffer for his sake, Will you suffer? Maybe it could just make it a little more simple. Cause I I doubt that we're gonna have some goons come in here with machine guns and say, deny Jesus or we'll kill you. And I really hope we don't have that happen anytime soon. But sometimes just the mere cost of getting up and reading your Bible is too much for a believer. Sometimes the boldness to speak up when someone makes light of the gospel or inquires of the gospel in a way in which you know you're not really being asked. Sometimes the boldness to speak to a neighbor who's needing hope and you just give them, I'll pray for you words rather than, you know, if you really want hope, I'd love to share with you about Jesus Christ. Our words we know will probably bring shame, or at least risk it. And so we say nothing. Sometimes we're afraid to talk to our own children because we're afraid they don't know Jesus, and we don't want there to be division in our home. Sometimes we just fail to pay the price of godliness by turning off the television when there's trash on the screen. That Christ has not called you just to be comfortable and slap a little bit of Jesus on top of everything and you're going to be good. He says, come, join me outside the camp in this place of affliction. And we look at how God called Moses out of Egypt to join God's people, to suffer affliction with them, so that he could call them out of affliction into the, plan, the, the lane of promise. You don't get to B unless you first go to A. Some of you desperately want God's best for your life. God's best for your life might not be the most pleasant thing. Are you willing to start by doing what God has called you to do? I mean, Sometimes I'm just looking at the men in the room. Sometimes it means you just have to lead your home. And it starts by leading yourself, doing right. God calls Moses, and you see that movement of he's he's rescuing, he's rescuing, and he's rescuing. And at the end, where is he? He's a shepherd. He's got a sweet wife, but he's got no people and he's got no nation. He says, I'm an exile. I'm a pilgrim. And you know what? That's exactly what the New Testament calls us. We are pilgrims, we are sojourners. This land, as the song says, I know it's a little bit, maybe not the style of song we sing here very often. This world is not my. I'm just passing through. Is that true of you? Are you willing to go to Christ? Let me just urge some of you who are not believers. Christ doesn't call us to affliction. He calls us to himself. Trust Christ. Go to him. Jesus may come with affliction. You may have a hard time if you come to Jesus. But Jesus is worth it. Jesus is all glorious. Do you think Moses in heaven right now is regretting going to Israel, to joining the people, to calling them his brothers, to suffering affliction? Is he in any way saying, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. Maybe about the murder. But do you think he regrets joining God's people? So while in this life we are called to suffer with Jesus, Hebrews is clear. Both with Moses and Jesus, the promised end of God's people is sweeter by far than the suffering of today. I don't know what it, what it costs to follow Christ for you. I don't know what family affliction, what sorrows and relationships, what financial burdens it will bring. I know without any doubt that scripture says it is worth it. Come to Jesus today. Don't. Hold back anymore. For those of you who are Christians who have navigated your life with comfort and ease, your entertainment is about what makes you enjoy life, and your Savior is not pleased with you. Just choose to follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that in all areas of our life we would pursue Christ likeness, no matter what it costs us personally. More than this, Lord, I ask that you would save those who are unwilling to be affiliated with Christ and his people because they know that there's cost in it. And they're neither willing to give up independence nor are they desiring to pay the cost. Lord, I ask that you would give them a captivated heart by Christ, that they would see how good and sweet our Savior is He has never called us to suffer where he has not first suffered. For the joy set before him, he endured that cross. Lord, I ask that you would help us to also endure following after him, taking up our cross, that daily we might follow after him. Father, I pray that you would save people by giving them a heart that loves Christ and trusts in him. Please help our church to be a church that rests confidently in your providential outworking as we have testified again and again in the book of Exodus already, you equipping and preparing a servant to do your task. Seeing how your hand is intricately woven together the life of Moses and knowing with a certainty that that same hand is knitting together our lives bringing about circumstances and events and moments, not only for your glory, but that we might honor you in those moments as well. Lord, help us to be people who are confident that regardless of what has happened in our life, you are moving with purpose to produce good for those who love you and glory for your son. Lord, give us rest in this, we pray. Amen.